I want to begin with a thank you to Ava for playing the role of Nick this morning. This was one of those weeks we had to make a later change in those who were volunteering and helping with worship, and so we're so thankful for your flexibility and jumping right in with us. I am so thankful for this whole congregation's flexibility and support of the church in so many ways, in all the ways that you volunteer your time and energy. Friends, today is, as you might have guessed, Good Shepherd Sunday. We've been following the lectionary and will continue, which is the series of readings that uh, gets read over three years, different readings for each Sunday. And while I haven't always used this, sometimes going off on little deviations of my own, we've been following it in the time leading up to Easter and now in the time after. And so it is this many weeks after Easter that we go all in on the shepherd imagery, Jesus as the shepherd and all of us as sheep. And so this is the text that we come to this morning as we still are celebrating the resurrection, moving together in the dance of faith. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mid-afternoon. On Tuesday, September 1st of 1914, 108 years ago, at the Cincinnati Zoo, one small pigeon fell from its perch in its cage to the floor where it died. No one was looking in at that moment, so the pigeon lay there for a time, a mostly nondescript bird, a pigeon, after all, with rusty brown coloring and some mottled black and gray colors, on its wings. The seasons were changing, and so the bird had been molting, leaving some feathers loose and out of place. And in time, a keeper came to the enclosure, this 18 by 20 foot aviary, near to the front of the zoo, built in the style of a Japanese pagoda with bright yellow walls and orange roof tiles and a massive wall of windows for visitors to look in. And when they saw this bird on the ground, the zoo leapt into action rushing to freeze this pigeon's body and more than 300 pounds of ice to ship to the Smithsonian, where the bird would be preserved and mounted for display. And the news was shared with the press, and quickly, across the country, news stories were printed in newspapers telling this story. This pigeon, who had died, was 29 years old. Her name was Martha. She had died and taken with her an entire species. For Martha was the last surviving passenger pigeon in the world, and now the passenger pigeons were extinct. This would have seemed a nearly impossible outcome just a century earlier. The passenger pigeon was once the most common bird in North America, and after their arrival, European settlers commented on the massive quantities of these pigeons, writing about how a single flock would be composed of literally hundreds of thousands of birds or hundreds of millions of birds, enough to block out the sun for hours at a time as they flew by. And when the birds nested, they would all settle over an area together spanning hundreds of square miles. And the pigeons had been there for a long time, had long been hunted by the native tribes, but they became an important food source for the burgeoning American society and they began to be hunted in nearly unimaginable quantities. They weren't considered a game bird, mostly because they were too easy to catch. Their flocks were so dense that it was said an amateur hunter could easily bring down, a, bring down six birds with a single shotgun shot, 
and a more experienced shot could take out more than 60 birds at once with a single double-barreled blast from a shotgun. They were so numerous and so easy to hunt that 30,000 birds had to be killed to claim the prize in one passenger pigeon hunting competition. These pigeons were regularly killed by the tens of thousands. And the result of such massive hunting, alongside ongoing deforestation, meant a quickly dwindling population. Their decline was readily apparent in the late 1800s with the last major nesting in 1878 in the woods near Petoskey, Michigan. There, 50,000 birds a day were killed for nearly five months. And some states, including Michigan, had passed laws to protect the birds at this point, but it was rather late, and the laws were rarely enforced. And so sightings of the passenger pigeon became scarcer and scarcer until there was only a single bird, named Martha, held in a cage at the Cincinnati Zoo. Environmentalists were trying to salvage the species. When the last male passenger pigeon at the Cincinnati Zoo died, they began a competition offering $1,000 for anyone who could find Martha a mate. But there were no more passenger pigeons in the wild, and Martha lived for four years alone in her enclosure. She faltered in those later years, becoming listless and immobile, while we, humans who had crushed her species, tried to save it the only way we knew how, the way we try to save everything, with walls and doors and locks pinning the last remaining passenger pigeon to this single place on earth. But Martha wasn't a carrier pigeon. Carrier pigeons live with a single never-ending task in life, which was to get back home to the place they had claimed for their own. And though they would go, they would always come back to one single spot. But passenger pigeons were social, nomadic creatures, always in a flock and constantly moving to find better food, better shelter, or better nesting grounds. And so it was discovered much too late that these birds needed that massive movement of the flock, and they would not breed in the confines of captivity. What we had thought was a shelter for the species actually stifled new life. In our efforts to conserve and protect, we held too tightly and had the opposite effect. And no, if some passerby had opened Martha's cage and let her out, it would not have saved the species. The deforestation and the hunting would still have been an unrelentless force of extinction. But it is still a parable of a sort, speaking to the way we seek the safety of enclosed spaces, huddling behind strong walls and locked doors, unaware that the cages of our own making may not be salvific, but in fact one more slow force. Of extinction. On the day of his resurrection, Jesus rescued his disciples from cages of their own making, meeting them in rooms with locked doors and shutters drawn across the windows. They were afraid, desperate for a leader and a guide and a friend, and Jesus stepped into their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were calmed and drawn out of the room, brought out of the confines that they thought were safe, but it were in fact stifling new life, delivered into the world where they would thrive. A good caretaker knows what is needed for the creatures in their care to live and to thrive, sometimes better than the creatures know themselves. 
I am the good shepherd, Jesus told his disciples not so many months earlier, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It was a comfort to them then, and a comfort to us still, a relief for all of us who endure this inhospitable world. There are wars and violence, injustice and sickness, tragedy and grief abounding. Life here is delicate and fragile, in need of a shepherd's protection. It is a balm to a weary soul to know that Jesus would give whatever it takes, including his own life, to shelter and shepherd us, whatever that might mean. And in these words of comfort, Jesus continues and says, I have other sheep that don't belong to the sheep pen. I must lead them too. And this too is a comfort to know that Jesus is not done. He's not done yet. He is coming for all of God's children, scattered across the fields and the mountains, across the whole of creation, ready to gather them together under his gentle eye and the tender care that a shepherd can bring. Although the way we tend to hear this comfort can also reveal our assumptions about what it means to be protected and safe. For it can be heard as an evangelistic invitation that Jesus is going out to fetch the sheep and to bring them back to us, to the place where we are, where we have erected walls and doors that lock for our own safekeeping, where we are ready to welcome Jesus' other sheep as long as they remain here with us within the borders that we have created, teaching them our rules and what we know of Christ so that we might stand our ground on this spot of earth and remain unmoved and unchanged. But Jesus says that the other sheep already know him, are already under his care, and the Greek is ambiguous about who is going where for this unity to occur. And so as we huddle in our enclosed spaces for safety, Jesus might ask, why would you assume I would bring them to you and not you to them? A commenter on this passage points out that the people of Christ have often placed their unity and their safety in the figurative walls that close in the church, and yet the results across history have not been encouraging. The walls have either been so comprehensive as to enclose a number of wolves along with the sheep, they write, or they have been so restrictive as to exclude more sheep than they enclose. Our safety and our unity is not in the boundaries that we create, but the person and the power of the shepherd we follow. And Jesus, Jesus can hardly be tied down. Jesus is on the move, ready to give all he has for his sheep, wherever they might be and whatever that might mean. This is how we know what love is, First John tells us, and what we are to emulate. We follow Jesus by following in his love, ready to give all we have to love one another as Christ is ready to give all that Christ has to love us, whatever it is that might mean. This is a repeating theme in Scripture, of course. Just a few verses earlier, the author of First John reminds his readers that this is the message we have heard from the beginning, love one another. And sometimes it feels like the only message there is to be heard, that every time we come to the Scriptures or we hear a sermon preached from the pulpit, it is always this, love one another, children, love one another, love one another, love one another. But perhaps it's important to hear it again 
and again and again all over again. There's an old story that John the Apostle, sometimes called John the Elder, lived in the communities these texts, the gospel and the letters, were written for. And when he was very old, and in the last days of his life, the community would still invite him to preach when they gathered for worship and communion. And John would preach, but his words were short and almost always the same. Little children, he told them again and again and again, love one another. A member of the community asked him once with no small measure of annoyance why he kept repeating the same message over and over and over again to them. And John said to them, because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. And so we might surmise that John knew what we all likely know. It is not a commandment so easy to keep, not an instruction so easy to learn. It is not so easy to love in the fullness of love. A reporter once asked the greatest cellist in the world, then in his 80s, why he continued to practice for so many hours every day. And the cellist said to them, because I think I'm starting to see some progress. The same may be true with love. We all have notions about love, and we aspire to it. We yearn for it, and yet we do not know what love is. Not completely. What we call love is not always love. The author of 1 John reminds us of this. Even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. They write, What feels like love, what our hearts insist must be love, is not the measure we hold ourselves to. We seek not to satisfy the heart, but to love truly, in deed, and in truth, to hold Christ's example for us. And it might challenge us. It might ask that we give up more than just our lives, but everything we cling to inside the walls that we have created. It might require that we give away our understanding, our wealth, our wisdom, our insight, our own safety, our privileges, our finely crafted worldviews where everything makes sense or anything else that we might have. It might require that we do what challenges us, what we know is loving because it emulates Christ, because it truly leaves another feeling loved, even if we feel our hearts struggling within us about it. We might have to give away a lot to follow Jesus, to leave behind the comfort of what we know, the ways that we want to love. But this is where Jesus is going to bring together all his sheep. The church has long struggled with following on this way, with following the movements of Jesus and including those who have been left left out or have left on their own because the church has set boundaries instead of following Christ. In the first centuries, it was questions about whether you could be a Gentile and a Christian. And then later it was whether you could be a slave and a Christian or a Jew and a Christian. Could black Christians lead in the church or women or divorced Christians? The questions persisted as the church wondered, where are the walls that we can create? And so the church has struggled and at times worried that we have found ourselves on a slippery slope. But as Padre Gotuma, a 
poet and a theologian, himself gay and speaking to a church conference on LGBTQ inclusion, once said, asking serious questions about LGBT people is not a slippery slope. Because to imply a slippery slope implies that we're at the top of the slope, and the only way is down. It could be that we are at the bottom of a huge slope. And let's hope it's not slippery, because we have a long way to climb. It may be we are not forever moving our walls and our boundaries because it's not walls and boundaries that keep us true or keep us safe or keep us loving. It's following Jesus, the Jesus who refuses to be pinned down, who rescues us from the sanctuaries we have created and which are stifling the spirit within us. For as much as we yearn for a shepherd And for the shepherd's care and protection, sheep live on the move from pasture to pasture, place to place, rarely with walls or fences, with anything that separates here from there. Only a shepherd there in the middle calling all of his sheep to him. And the sheep know his voice. They come. I wonder if 108 years ago there was a small pigeon feeling very lost, very alone, left in a place that was not conducive to life. It may have met a shepherd turned birder, opening the door, inviting her out. Because to follow the one who cares for who loves us, who would give up anything for us, is to thrive and to love. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand.